Hey everyone, I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and welcome to another edition of Dinner for One, our occasional podcast-only bonus series in which we give you a single, almost unedited interview with someone amazing. That's right. Two Dinner for Ones in one month this month. We should have had them both over for dinner. Yeah. Um, yes, we posted one of these last week featuring my chat with director Paul Feig. That's right. And you should go check that out, if only so you're hip to the whole walking stick trend that you might not have been aware of. Yeah, Paul announced that on uh, our last Dinner for One episode. If you're walking around stickless, you're nowhere. Man. But anyway, this time around, you're going to hear Rico's interview with writer Damon Lindelof. That's correct. He co-created the ABC series Lost, which is regularly listed among the greatest TV shows of all time. He's also written installments of the Alien and Star Trek movie franchises. But these days, he is the showrunner of HBO's The Leftovers, which he created along with Tom Parada, the author of the novel on which it is based. Yeah, that's a pretty impressive resume. Uh, no kidding. I'm looking forward to hearing this conversation now. Yes, although um, part of the conversation uh, has stuff from his resume that's less impressive, but we'll hear about that in a second. Okay. But I'm going to tell people what The Leftovers is about. You probably should. It's complicated. It's about a, f- <laughs> it's about a family living in the aftermath of an unexplained event in which 2% of the world's population suddenly vanished without a trace. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's a study of how people deal with grief and loss. And we're going to hear a clip, and it's from episode one, mm-hmm. and it's a woman who lost her baby and a man who lost his wife, and they meet by chance at a bar. Where were you? When it happened, where were you? I was in my house, cleaning out a gutter. Oh. Where were you? I was in a parking lot at the laundromat. Hey, we're still here. We sure are. Since its debut in 2014, critics have called The Leftovers one of the best shows on TV. The series' third and final season ends this weekend. Before Damon and I talked about the show, though, I reminded him we have a past. It is wonderful to be here. Um, So normally, we ask all our guests a standard question, which is tell us something we don't know. But I'm just going to say right at the top here, probably many people don't know that you and I were both on the writing staff together for the MTV show Undressed. Yes, Back in like 2000 or something. It just hit me, yes. <laughs> that was that was in like 98, man. Was like it 98? 98 or, yeah, 98 or 99, I don't want to think that far back. With Steve DeKnight. Yeah, Steve DeKnight, who went on and, to be on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Dale Roy Robinson and Jewel. I can't remember Jewel her last Selva name. Jewel Selva was, was the showrunner of the show. Yep, and we had, like, we had to write 36 episodes in a day. six weeks. <laughs> and... Every three scenes, we had to figure out a way to get people into a hot tub. <laughs> That's right. And which is the same on The Leftovers, by the way, <laughs> oddly enough. That's not true. Yeah, For it, those who don't know, this, oh is, a, this is a show. It was basically uh, a soap opera, a late night MTV soap opera for teens with a lot of sex in it. Yes. And I'm speaking of Thus Steve DeNight. Yes. It's 20 years ago. That was about 20 years ago. Oh, my God. The, by the way, uh, the thing I most remember from that show is Steve DeNight, who was our head uh, writer. That's right. We'd say, I, I don't know how what should happen next in the scene, and he wouldn't even read it. He would just say, "Pop the top." Yep. Meaning get get somebody's shirt get off. someone's top off. <laughs> Absolutely, male, female, didn't matter. Equal so, opportunity. So here's my question to you. Oh boy. Uh, how? Well, it's not that hard a question, but like, given the nature no of that intended. show, is there anything? 
Yeah, go on. <laughs> is yeah. there anything that you took from writing that show that you that you took with you into the rest of your writing career on you know massive sci-fi epics? Absolutely, and I'm not just spinning it because the amazing thing about that show was we had three sets, right? So, and the way that Undressed work was there there were three different storylines. There was a high school storyline, there was a college storyline, and then there was like a just graduated storyline. And there were maybe eight of us, and we were all writing scenes in each storyline, but they kind of had to oddly interact connect but they all had to just take place on this set yeah and like i think the that, entire high school storyline had to be on like one set right and so the limitations and the speed at which you had to write was great boot camp because it's like that scene in apollo 13 where they you know they're running out of oxygen up there and the dude just walks into the room and dumps out like a box of stuff and says like this is we have to make like a filtration system out of this. This is all we have. And one guy's like, "Could we use a pen?" It's like they don't have a pen up there. Yeah. So I think that so sometimes, especially once I started writing for bigger budget movies or or you know network drama or H- HBO, it almost feels like you can kind of do whatever you want. But returning to that idea of like limitations are a very good thing. Sometimes you, you need to know where the walls are. Limitations and deadlines are a writer's best friend, I think. Yes, although it does help to have just, if you do come up with a great idea, to have as much money as possible to throw at it budget-wise. That that that, <laughs> that seems to be the case, and yet, like, the best movie I've seen in the last year is Get Out, you okay. know? And so, like, can, budget can, can you put that movie side-by-side side with Guardians of the Galaxy 2, which is a great movie, but cost $170 million more and say that it's $170 million better? Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's like, what's Jordan Peele going to do next? You know, I'd love to see him get his hands on a $150 million movie. And I'm sort of like, eh, I don't know. Is that a good thing? Yeah, yeah, maybe um, that'll so, be. And, and we have seen this many a time. A lot of people talk about indie film as being like a boot camp right. now for major motion pictures. And then you see people flame out when they get those budgets. Not just flame out, but it's sort of like, you know, they're playing for another. You make a cool, you know, Colin Trevorrow makes a great, you know, cool movie like Safety Not Guaranteed. And then. He, now he's doing Star Wars films, and that's great. I want I want Colin Trevorrow or Ryan Johnson to be making Star Wars films, but at the same time, I also want to see what their follow ups to you know Looper and Safety Not Guaranteed are. More personal films, right? Um, I just want to say by the end of this interview, we're getting someone in the hot tub. Right. We have to figure it out together for old times' sake. <laughs> That'll be weird on public radio. We can just do it by bringing up a sound effect. That's exactly just pretend right. Pretend we're in one right now. Oh man, you've ruined the illusion. You've Sorry. taken away the magic. Uh, but let's talk about the kind of sci-fi that you do, which tends to be... Well, let's just say that one of your earliest influences, you've said, was Twin Peaks. Sure. Very ambiguous, weird, dreamlike thing. Yes. Lost had a similar kind of ambiguous mystery at the heart of it. Right. You've said that that's one of the attractions to you of The Leftovers, is that it's this... and Everybody's living in this ambiguous world where there is no resolution. Just like the real world, yeah. Why are you so attracted to that? As frustrating as it may be for others, I've always been drawn into the story that that has an interpretive ending, the book that has the last 10 pages ripped out. Um, I've told this story before, but um, not f- terribly recently, which is there were these books called Encyclopedia Brown books that oh, my yeah. that um, where where there were these little mysteries. Encyclopedia Brown was a boy detective, and he and I think his buddy S- Sally basically would solve these cases, and they were like five or six pages. And at the end of the case, it would be like, how did Encyclopedia know that Bugs Meanie stole his bike? And then you'd flip to the end, and it would tell you what the giveaway was. Yeah. And my dad caught me basically like flipping to the end before I'd even really thought it out. So he ripped out 
all of the answers mm-hmm. in my Encyclopedia Brown books. And so wow. I was, I would go to him and be like, is this how he found out? And my dad would be like, oh, I don't know. I, I threw those pages away. <laughs> so I just have to sort of sit there thinking like, I think I got it, but I'm not sure. So this and is I, how you grew up basically. Yeah, but I'm still catalyzed by, you know, uh, like making a murderer or a serial or S-Town. Those, those stories don't have you know, fixed endings because they're real. And there is this idea of reality of just like never knowing um, that is so engrossing. And I understand that people want in their storytelling some level of a definitive answer, especially like in uh, in a murder or a mystery story. But life just doesn't reflect that idea. But I mean, I kind of figured you'd say that. But on the other (laughs) hand, the reason why people go to see narratives and the reason why narratives have such a pull on us, I think, is because they're a way to organize the world in a way that it isn't in reality. So you go into a story wanting some order. You want a beginning, middle, and end. So it seems like if you're not ever going to give them that like payoff at the end, you're working at a disadvantage from the beginning. You are giving them something else, though. Like you take a movie like the original Blade Runner that ends with a, a high degree of ambiguity and even Ridley Scott's director's cut, even more so. This idea of like, well, was Decker a replicant? That's the Harrison Ford character. We're not going to tell you. And, you know, Blade Runner comes out, it bombs, you know, but here we are. Uh, mm. 30 years later, anticipating the return to that world. There's a sequel but coming out. I just think that's another way to tell stories. There, you, you know, there's got to be room for both both ways of doing it. Tell me about pitching, though, The Leftovers to, you know, HBO or to studios, because it doesn't seem to me that it's an easy sell. It's like, what we have here is an extremely ambiguous situation that well, has no resolution. In that case, there was an advantage going in because Tom Ferrata's novel was very unapologetic in saying the very premise of the show, which is 2% of the world's population spontaneously disappears. But the novel basically says, we're not going to tell you where they went or why. It's, uh, the novel is about one family basically living in the wake of, uh, of this very strange incident, and we're never going to tell you how or why it happened. So HBO optioned that book before I even became involved. You didn't and have there, to sell yeah, it. Yeah, well, I think in one of those meetings, even HBO uh, was saying, you're never going to tell us, right? And we're like, no. <laughs> and I, I was basically, you know, about 18 months out of finishing Lost, and I think everyone except for me was appreciating the irony of me being in that scenario, but th- I think that's why I was drawn to the material. Not everybody was happy, let's say, with how Lost resolved. Sure, but you know, Lost was built on a on a different engine, and it, and and that engine did promise resolution. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it did say you are going to get the answers to these mysteries, and in fact, Carlton and I, who ran the show together for six years, we regularly told the fan base, "You're getting answers," <laughs> and so it was not. Um, Bad. I disagree with the assessment that we didn't give answers. I think it's more the answers we gave were not the answers that people wanted or the answers that people liked. But when I am confronted by someone who's like, you never answered any questions, I'm like, let's take 15 minutes together. You've got me right now. Not only will I answer any question you've got, but I will point you chapter and verse to the episode that answered it. And I have yet to be stumped. <laughs> so it's okay if you didn't like the answers, but it's I, I think it's an unfair designation that sure. we didn't answer anything. Let's talk about In fact, this, we though. may have answered too much. <laughs> that's the, um, you know, that's the lesson learned. Well, let, actually, let's talk about this because you, you work a lot in these properties, some of the hugest franchises that there are, and they come with these built-in fan bases that have this ownership over the material sure. where they are so happy that the material exists 
and they're maybe really happy that you got the gig, but if you mess with their thing or if you create something that they love and then you mess with it, then it's your you've somehow destroyed their baby. Of course. Talk about the interacting with fans on that level. I feel that way about it too, which is, you know, so I'm a fan of Star Trek. I'm a fan of the Alien movies. And then suddenly I'm in a position where I'm essentially writing fanfic, but I'm getting compensated for it, and it's going to get made. But I have to understand my place in it, which is this is not a world that I created. But, it, you know, if people were getting upset about the prequels of the Star Wars films, that's the fans being protective of the material. But the person that we're criticizing is the same guy who made the Star Wars yeah. films. And so part of you is like, well, George Lucas is kind of allowed to do whatever he wants. Yeah. And then another part of you is like, but I've invested a lot of time and energy into Star Wars, not a tenth of the time and energy that George Lucas has. But I am entitled, because I'm a fan of this thing, to uh, to protect it. And if you're taking it out of the kind of geekosphere, if you're a sports fan, yeah. which I also am, I'm, I've been a fan of the New York Jets since I was seven or eight years mm. old. And I will watch Jets games every Sunday basically just talking about how much they suck <laughs> and how much I hate them and all the things that they're doing wrong. Yeah. But I love the Jets. And so I think part of fan culture is this kind of ability to uh. Uh, critique something, which I didn't really understand until it was happening to me. And I made the mistake towards the end of Lost when people were critical of the show. I'd be like, well, you're not a fan of the show. And <laughs> you in, don't get and it. And in fact, I've come around. There are a, a number of really uh, great uh, writers. I think Emily Nussbaum, who now write, writes for uh, The New Yorker and may sure. have been writing for them at the time, made a very cogent argument for, well, of course, she's, she's, she's a fan and she's allowed to not like it. And I was like, oh, okay, that is absolutely the case. So I... I'm not hired to be a fan. It's very hard for me when I'm sitting across the table from Ridley Scott not to be like, we have to talk about Blade Runner. Like, let's just talk about Blade Runner for like, set. he's like, I hired you to write Prometheus. Shut up. Be a professional. Um, and so you almost have to, you know, wash away your fandom in order to effectively do your job. It's very different than my work in television where I'm the showrunner or the co-showrunner. It's more or less my vision and my responsibility. When I'm working on movies, it's really about servicing the vision of, of the director. Let's talk about actually the writing of this show because it is so ambiguous in certain ways. Undressed? Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, what right. else are we talking That's about? That's the other thing that I learned the from, most important from Undressed is just ambiguity. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Come on. They, uh... Uh, what was I saying? We, uh, uh, let's talk about I'm this just show. Speaking of naked about, about, um, about the leftovers. Oh, yes, the leftovers, that thing. Yeah. Whatever. Right. It's yes. flash in the pan, man. I'm sorry. It's been a long downhill. Seriously, get over it. Yeah. Uh, we. So you're working on a show like this that is ambiguous. You burned through the plot of the book, I think, in the first season. Yep. So now you're free to sort of take it wherever you want to. And it does, because it has this ambiguous quality and because there's an almost stream of consciousness thing to it. I wonder how much of it was plotted meticulously out in advance or how much you're just kind of going with the flow. It feels like something very organic in a lot of ways. Season by season, there has to be a plan. Going into the second season, it didn't feel like we could even start writing the second season until we knew what the last scene of the second season was. Mm -hmm. what, what's interesting about that is the last scene that we had plotted out for season two actually ended up being the first scene of the finale, and then we went beyond it. That's the thing about television storytelling is you don't really know what pace it's you're going to be chewing through it until you're actually engaged in it. The story that I love is that 24, the, the television show, they basically pitched that show so that the first season, 
episode one pilot, Jack Bauer, finds out there's going to be an, an assassination attempt on the president's life. And in episode 24, he thwarts that assassination. Right. He ended up thwarting it in episode six. <laughs> and so they're like, all right, we've got 16 episodes to go post-thwarting. What do we do now? <laughs> so I, I like being in charted ca- territory. I like it when I'm approaching an episode and I don't quite know what to do and you have to kind of fumble your way through it. Really? You like it? I that do like, like it. like stress beyond imagination. It is stressful, but... But it's also the most exciting thing about about storytelling is discovery. For me as a viewer, I do feel like there's familiar storytelling. You know, we know what the arc of a superhero movie is going to be. Like, I'm not saying that Spider-Man Homecoming isn't going to be great, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Michael Keaton wants to do something really bad that's going to damage New York City and that Spider-Man is going to stop him, yep. you know? like going to try for you sure. Know, and there's probably a love interest in there. Maybe it's Mary Jane, maybe it's Gwen, who knows? But it's like you kind of know what it's going to be, and there's comfort in that. And then that movie is going to deliver based on the performances or the writing or the action set pieces feeling a little bit different than stuff that you've seen before, but it's all inside that box. But when I watch an episode of Mr. Robot or Fargo or Legion or Transparent, I'm like, what is going to, what's the next episode going to be? You know, there was an episode of Transparent from this last season that revolves around a turtle or a tortoise. I think it's a turtle. And it just like devastated me. I mean, my wife and I watched it and we just looked at each other and we're like, something beautiful just happened. And we, we were completely not expecting it. That's the kind of thing that I'm chasing is, is, you know, this idea of discovery, the indescribable. I can't explain to you why that turtle moment is so great, but I can almost guarantee if you just watch that one episode, even if you don't watch Transparent, you'll understand that something incredibly special just happened. This is the last season of the show. Of The Leftovers, yeah. Yeah. You know how it's going to end? Have you blown past what you thought the ending was at this point? We sat in a room for about at least two weeks, but maybe three weeks, just Mm -hmm. talking about what the final scene of the series was going to be. Mm -hmm. And we figured that out. We reached you know, consensus through sort of vigorous debate, but not compromise. We got to a point where everybody, all the writers were like, yes, that. And then it was just figuring out how to earn that. And this time, you know, that's exactly the scene that the series does end on. And we started to, we found ways in the storytelling to signal to the audience that that's what we were moving towards. There's all sorts of hints in the early episodes of what the, what the final scene is going to be. So that when you get there, it won't be surprising. It will feel inevitable, I hope. Uh, one question, though, that I do want to ask, this will be, and then we'll get on to our standard questions. Um, in the first episode of the first season, for some reason, one of the people that is mentioned as having disappeared is Gary Busey. Yes. And in fact, the line in the first season is, I understand why the Pope disappeared, but Gary Busey, what, what's up with that? Yes. And then in the third season, somebody's like erecting kind of almost a statue of Gary yes. Busey. Yes. What, tell me about the decision to make that Gary Busey. Um, As we, like the, the, in a way, it's like the example of the last guy who should have disappeared. Yeah. I, I guess we wanted to illustrate that there was a broad spectrum of people who disappeared. And, if, and Gary Busey really represented that idea of, I don't know how to explain Busey's disappearance. And the other thing is Busey sort of fashions himself as kind of a guru. You know, he has all these kind of like strange sayings that he um, that he makes into anagrams and he seems to have figured it all out. So he's the closest thing that our culture has to a modern day prophet. And it was all (laughs) it was also just funny. 
you know? And I think that yeah. in the first season, we treated Busey's disappearance, you know, with a fairly straight-edged sword. But in the third season, these guys basically create this huge, like, kind of Macy's Day Thanksgiving balloon, Busey balloon. And the guys who have made it are, like, frat guys. So they're not taking it seriously. They're saying, like, Gary Busey is going to return on the seven-year anniversary of the departure. Yeah. And I think that that was a way of basically signaling to the audience, there have to be people on in this show who don't take the show as seriously as everyone else does. Yeah. And I think that when we started exploring these different frequencies, the the show kind of came alive in a way that it probably didn't in the early early episodes. I will say it is funny. It's like it's it, the tone of it is indescribable. For a Folks show about grief, it. it's hilarious. There you go. <laughs> yeah. For a show that an early scene has a dog being suddenly shot, yes. it's actually surprising. Well, that part is not funny, but no, um, not at all. But Parada is an incredibly funny guy and he was trying to t- trying to say in the first season hey, the show can be funny too. And there is a lot of humor in his, obviously, election is a straight-up comedy, but even in, in some, something like Little Children, a book that he wrote, where one of the major characters is ba- basically a child molester who's just been released, he finds these very interesting tangents of humor. It's slightly disturbing humor, mm-hmm. um, more absurdity, but I finally started listening to him and many of the other writers who were impressing upon me. People laugh at funerals. People laugh at wakes. Laughter is a coping mechanism too. So if you're interested in exploring coping mechanisms, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to be silly. Don't be afraid to be absurd. And I started listening to them, and fortunately I did because it ended up working out pretty well. Yeah, a lot of Margaret Atwood's dystopian fiction is also pretty funny. Yeah, for sure. Handmaid's Tale is uh, is definitely <laughs> up for a comedy of the That's year. That's not a laugh riot, yeah, yeah. but others. No, right, for sure. Um, we already got an answer to our first standard question, which is tell us something we don't know. Our second question is... If we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Oh, my God. Uh, Were you making it up as you went along? Which you've already asked me here. Sorry. No, no. It's because you shouldn't ask it to me, not because I don't want to answer it, but you're going to get my speech. um, And... And you're going to hate me even more than you already do probably before you ask the question. Why is that? Your speech was great. No, no. Uh, that, my, my response to that at a party is, you know, is people actually only ask me two questions. One is, were you making it up as you went along? And the other is, how much input do the fans have? Um, and they want the answer to, were you making it up as you go along, to be no. We had a plan. There was a binder. There was a blueprint. We followed it to the letter. There was no spontaneity. There was no winging it. We we knew what we were doing right. every step of the way. That's yeah. the way that we want mom and dad to answer that question. That's the way that we want our leadership and the country to answer that question. There, There's a plan. Question number two, how much impact do the fans have? They want the qu- answer to that question to be like, a lot. We listen to everything you say. If you don't like something or a character, yeah. we'll kill them off. If something's too confusing to you, if the, if the pace, we will adjust based on your input. Nobody wants to hear, I don't care what you think. The fans have no impact on the storytelling whatsoever. Um, and no one, I, no one can identify the paradox between these two answers. Because if there is a plan, if there is a binder, if there is a blueprint, then the fans have zero impact. But if you want to have impact on the storytelling, then there can't yeah. be a plan that we won't deviate from. Yeah. And then I say this, and as I'm talking to people, I can start to see their fate. They get them getting angrier and angrier and angrier at me. Um, and well, then like, my, I just asked you a question. And then my man. wife politely squeezes my elbow 
and gets me out of there. Poor, poor Heidi, my wife, has to hear that speech over and over and over again. And now all of America has as well. All of America. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, really good to be here, and let's go hop in that hot tub. Damon Lindelof, co-creator and showrunner of HBO's The Leftovers. The series finale airs this weekend. And Brendan Damon and I mentioned a guy named Steve DeKnight that we worked with on Undressed, mm-hmm. you may have heard. Yep. Steve is now directing the sequel to Guillermo del Toro's blockbuster Pacific Rim. Wow. That is a true story. So basically, yeah. teen sex comedies really give you a head start in Hollywood. That's right. Learning. And in public radio. You can become a public well, radio host if you do that. We all know that. Classic woodshedding for this gig. Robert Siegel, Terry Gross, Rachel yeah. Martin. All got their all start in sex comedies. Running Porky's, the TV spinoff that never happened because <laughs> there wasn't enough cable then. Uh, anyway, that concludes Dinner for One, everyone. Uh, this Friday, we'll post another full episode of our show. You won't want to miss it. It's going to be a classic dinner party download, and among our guests will be the great band Phoenix. Don't miss that. And meanwhile, give us a shout-out on social media, won't you? Tell us what you think of The Leftovers or My Sorted Writing Past or whatever's on your mind. We're on Facebook, and our handle on Instagram and Twitter is Dinner Party DNLD. Is that an outright request for people to tweet you about your past? Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were paying your penance in public radio, but you just maybe lost all know, your integrity once a again. A lot of cred is about to go down mm-hmm. the drain. He's a shrewd man. Jackson Musker is also, well, he's not shrewd, but he's, well, he's not smart if he's working for us, but he's a really good man, and he's good at what he does, and he's our senior producer. Yep. And our associate producers are James Kim and Krista Ripple. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our intern has a wonderful name. It's Emerald Douglas. Mm. And engineering help came courtesy of another person with a wonderful name, Bill Lance. Mm. We're going to talk to you on Friday, everybody. Bon appétit.